Welcome everyone. I'm uh, Di Mayer. I'm the Dean here of the Faculty of Education and Social Work and I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening. Um, before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever in Aboriginal custodianship of country. So thank you again uh, for joining us this evening. Uh, we have developed in the faculty a series of what we're calling Dean's Lecture Series um, and these uh, happen periodically um, and we invite uh, international speakers to join us and share their insights and their research and their knowledge. And these have been really interesting evenings because we often have people coming from a broad range of backgrounds. We often have some of our research students, we certainly have some of our faculty staff and we often have people from the professions and from the community and that always um, engages people in interesting ways and we're delighted that Marjorie can join us this evening for this evening's uh, lecture. Um, but you're not here to he hear from me, so I'm going to hand over to Margaret, who's going to do the formal introductions of Marjorie. And um, like everyone here, I'm really, really looking forward to Marjorie's talk. Thank you. Good evening and welcome. For our visiting uh, students from Beijing Normal University, I should say, uh, they taught me Fakachi. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. I'm getting better. <laughs> So uh, thank you for everyone for coming tonight on such a, in such inclement weather and it's with great pleasure that uh, I get to introduce uh, my, uh, my friend and academic uh, Marjorie Unas from Canada. I first met Marjorie now 16 years ago uh, when uh, I was doing my PhD and so was, so was Marjorie and our supervisors um, one who's here, Gwyneth Llewellyn, decided that the students could all share a one-bedroom unit. There were four. <laughs> there were there were four female students and one male student who was about two weeks off getting married, and the and the bedding arrangement was that there was two double beds and one pull-out bed in the lounge. Well, the male got the pull-out bed in the lounge. We all agreed, and. Um, I and Marjorie drew the, drew the short straw. So our friendship was um, our friendship was was uh, formed there. We were in Seattle at the time for the World Congress on Intellectual Disability, which um, is happening again this year in Melbourne in a, in a few weeks' time, and that's why Marjorie is here to present um, at the at the World Congress on Intellectual Disability. Every four years we've come together since then and I feel that it's every four years I come to catch up on Marjorie's life, um, which as she will um, share during the, during the uh, uh, talk tonight, has been a most interesting one and one that um, has uh, been an inspiration to all of us who have journeyed with her, both in terms of the contribution she's made academically but also in terms of what she's taught us about life. Marjorie holds a PhD in Educational Psychology 
from the University of Quebec in Montreal. Uh, her PhD in research is in the area of parenting with intellectual disability. Since 2002, uh, Marjorie has worked for the West Montreal Readaptation Centre uh, in Quebec and she has worked uh, across the range uh, of, with people with, uh, auti uh, with, um, with autism and uh, intellectual disability and other developmental disorders. Uh, she developed a program around supporting parents with intellectual disability and that program w through the centre won the um, Accreditation Canada Award in, in 2010 for an example of best practice in the field. Marjorie is a prolific writer and researcher in the area and um, has contributed greatly to what we know about parenting with intellectual disability. She's been a great advocate for parents and, um, and has also, in terms of her research, has been very generous in her collaboration with those of us who um, are interested in this area. So it's with great pleasure that I get to welcome Marjorie to, to tonight to talk about parenting with a disability from outsider to insider research. So thank you, Marjorie. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try to not check my slides too much or my notes, um, but there's some content that's quite emotional for me, so sometimes looking at notes sort of like helps stabilize. I tried um, to prepare the lecture today to, to bring you into my world as I became into the disability world, um, which was a big change. Um, I've been in a wheelchair four years now, so when we met, we were, I was standing up and I was dancing on tables um, <laughs> with Margaret um, and having a lot of fun. So um, that's a little bit what I wanted to do today. Um, before I, I start in terms of the uh, lecture per se, I wanted to, um, as I was preparing, I looked at the, the title and I was really um, interested and drawn to um, the title that Margaret suggested, uh, Parenting with Disabilities, From the Outsider to the Insider. To me, I felt that there was a lot of things that I could um, share with you. Um, in the same time, as I was sort of gathering my thoughts, um, there was something about the title that didn't quite um, um, work with me. Um, I think that you know, words are just words, yet they sometimes perpetuate some um, stereotypes or, or biases. Um, and I wasn't quite ready to be part of the disability world. I just wanted to be part of the world. And I still think in my head, actually, that I'm part of the world. And so I decided to change or modify the title. Parenting with adaptations, um, because with that simple change of wording, um, looking at adaptation meant two things for me. One is that I can parent um, just like everybody else, so I can do it. And two, adaptations means that it's a collaboration between me and whoever is around me um, to be able to to help me be inclusive um, and share and teach my son and grow with, within the parenting. 
Um, so that's my title. Now just to give you a little bit of a background, my beginning, so um, I'm at that age that I can actually say uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> I do have a little bit of white hair to prove it. 20 years ago I started in the field of parenting with intellectual disabilities and I started in that field as a young university student who uh, needed summer jobs to uh, you know, be able to pay for my studies. And in my first summer, or it wasn't my first summer job, but in that summer job, right before university, I worked with a uh, young child, eight-year-old girl, who had an intellectual disability. And my job was to integrate her into uh, day camps, so summer camps. And as I was working with her, there were certain things, you know, like she would come in with like her lunchbox not complete, you know, there was missing certain things and um, she would come in without, you know, her rain gear on or, or things like that. And someone sort of suggested that I meet her mom. And when I met her mom, it was the first time that I met a mother with an intellectual disability. And what I saw was a mom who was, you know, struggling on some things um, certainly organizational stuff was a bit difficult, but yet who cared a lot for her daughter um, and was really trying to do the best um, for her. And that really shaped, I think, my thinking because I saw a mom who did quite well. And so every other mom that I've met since this mom, um, I knew that mothering with intellectual disabilities was possible. Um, it was just a matter of seeing sort of um, what, is, what is working and sort of working from there. Now, again, as I was pre preparing, um, I think that I had two aha moments um, in my life, certainly in terms of parenting. And my two epiphanies were uh, when I became a single mom and then when I became a disabled mom. Um, single motherhood. Now, I don't know if you know this book. Um, Dr. Fellman and I wrote a book a few years back looking at competence-based um, parenting assessment. And in there, we talk a lot about um, task analysis um, as a tool for assessing or observing parenting, parenting task. Um, and so as I was um, becoming, as I became a mom, I realized that task analysis is a great tool, yet it's a tool that we have to be careful of, or we have to sort of understand the context. Now, I'll give you a few um, examples. Um, I had a condo, two floors, um, small bathrooms. I couldn't have like changing you know, tables in my bathroom, yet I knew from the task analysis and you know, being with nurses, that when you change nappies, you needed to, you know, at some point wash your hands. And so I was in front of my changing table and I had my child and I was sort of struggling with dirty nappies and sort of where, how do I wash my hands? Um, and I thought of like the moms that I work with and um, knowing that sometimes you have professionals in your home who would sort of look at you and sort of say, ah, you know, she didn't wash her hands and she like put the sissy in and, you know, her hands were just dirty from touching that nappy. Um, 
Now, I knew all the steps, I knew I needed to wash my hands, but it was just not possible within the context that I was at. Um, so I would say that my first epiphany, single motherhood, taught me that if you don't look at the context, uh, you don't understand what the story is. Um, and so you need to really like understand that context before passing judgment, or else we set up par parents um, by, you know, sort of thinking, well, she's not doing it yet, she's not physically capable of doing it, or within that context, not capable of doing it. And so that was um, something that Margaret used to um, use. I don't know if she still uses it, but I really liked it, which is you could look at that, you know, those three pictures, and we each could have a different sort of story within those pictures. Um, so again, it's sort of that image of understanding the context uh, in, that, um, in that way. All right, so my second epiphany is when I became a disabled uh, mother. On January 5th, 2012, um, I got into a really, really bad car accident. That was my car. <coughs> Um, I was just going to work, so it was a, you know, wonderful weather day. It was actually a beautiful day. Uh, but in Canada, as you may know, there's a lot of snow that falls in wintertime. And after a big snowstorm, when there's a beautiful sunshine, there's this thin layer of ice that is invisible to the eyesight that sort of forms on the roads. And that's what happened to me. Um, and it was just really bad timing. There was a big truck on the other side, so we sort of kissed each other. Um, and I became, in a quarter of a second, uh, paraplegic. Obviously, that changed. Um, you know, did a total 180. Um, I had a 16-month-old um, boy at the time, and um, it changed both of our lives. In the same time, like, <laughs> kids are pretty resilient, as you can see. Um, he thought it was kind of cool to push mom around, and he still pushes me around, quite literally. <laughs> um, and he just uh, loves it. Now, when I became disabled and I knew that I was going to be paraplegic, um, I thought long and hard of all the moms that I worked with. Um, I also, you know, in my unlucky situation, got really lucky. Um, I didn't have any uh, head trauma, so it was really just my spine that got severed. Um, and with that, my head continued to work or overwork for the people who know me. <laughs> and so there was a lot of like different numbers that popped um, into, into my head because I was thinking of all those moms that we work. And so the numbers that popped into my head, 33%, 45%, 10 percent. So 33 to 45% of moms with intellectual disabilities and their children are known to child welfare. Um, their children are in foster homes or removed from their parents' care. Um, in Canada, we'll talk about 10% of um, all child welfare cases um, um, are from a parent who has a cognitive impairment. In Australia, we'll talk about 24% of care proceedings uh, 
of a parent with an intellectual uh, disability. And if we look at research from all different countries, and when I see different countries, I'm talking Denmark, Germany, Belgium, Norway, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, United States, pretty much all over uh, the world, the removal rates of children is between 30 to 50%. So could be like one in two children that are removed from, from these moms. Um, the thing that also got, you know, popped into my head as I was uh, going through rehab was that two to three times, these parents are two to three times more likely to have child welfare in, involved, but without any evidence of maltreatment. So solely based on the disability status. Um, that was very scary for me as I became disabled and I had a very young child who had a lot of needs, right? At 16 months old, you know, like they run everywhere and, and they need a lot of attention. They still have diapers on. Um, so it's very demanding physically and I was broken physically. Um, so that was very scary for me. And that's a little bit the link that I'm going to do in this lecture, sort of like the emotions that I went through um, in terms of that relationship. Um, ironically, it just happened that way, about eight months after um, my accident, there was this big report in the United States that came out called um, Rocking the Cradle that really looked at parents with disabilities, but all kinds of disabilities, so intellectual, physical, visual, auditory. And what that report um, showcased was that parents with disabilities were discriminated against um, in all kinds of different proceedings and that often they lost their, um, their children or they had a hard time in terms of like proving that they could do it and sort of keep their, their children in their care. Um, and I'm a big I, I process by writing, and so I just wanted to read something that I wrote at that time, um, which is, I remember clearly being in my hospital bed, lying there, knowing that I would not be able to parent my child for quite a while. I was in that bed, and I would stay in that same bed for many days, weeks, and maybe months. And so I would stare at the door, waiting to be introduced to a child welfare worker, and imagining this, I would smile as I had prepared all my answers and I knew what to say. Certainly what I had learned and seen as a psychologist who worked with parents very closely, so I, I didn't just do research, I also met families. And so I knew that they were gonna look at, can you take care of him? Um, are you gonna abuse him? Um, and so it was really looking at how can I prepare my answer to show that I could have control, quote unquote, over my kid, um, and that if I couldn't do it myself, that I had sort of the support to do it. So knowing the system helped me. Um, having no head trauma helped me have a voice, um, which is not the case of a lot of the moms that I work with. Um, their voice is not heard, um, and sort of the workers don't get the full story most of the time. Now, I'll be sort of quoting or, or using some of the work that um, 
Dr. Mays and Dr. Lemelin um, have done. They've um, done research and um, gave a voice or showcased the voice of some mothers. Um, and I'm using this because I really wanted to share sort of what happens when you um, have to face sort of the parenting with disability. Um, the emotions uh, related to losing or the potential loss of a kid, um, it's like really a big dark pit of nothingness, if I could like say that this way. Um, it was certainly very scary. I wanted to be a mom so badly. Um, I was so happy to become a mom and when I thought that there would be a possibility that someone would take my kid away just because I was in a wheelchair, that was extremely um, scary. Um, it was actually just inconceivable for me, um, knowing that my child could be raised by somebody else, knowing that my child um, would go through certain developmental milestone without me being involved, um, that the way that I wanted my child to be raised may not be respected um, just because, you know, the day-to-day -day and the foster parents would take care of them or him. Um, that is all very um, scary and creates a lot of grief and a lot of loss and that's certainly some of the things that um, Rachel and Gwyneth, you know, reported. I felt um, profound sadness, that was one of the emotions. And so you'll see throughout um, some pictures of my kid, you'll see how cute he is, <laughs> handsome. Um, so profound sadness, I wanted to show you some pictures of him on a slide and tell you a story. So this was maybe six months after my accident and we're in my backyard. Um, and in my backyard, there was this beautiful like blue and red slide. So, you know, it's like three steps up and you sort of like sit down and slide down. Um, in my backyard, there's grass, so not very wheelchair friendly. Uh, grass and wheels just don't mesh. Um, and so we were having um, a dinner party with some of my family and my parents were there my kid was playing um, and he decided that he was going to slide so go up the three steps and then sit down and slide um, and my reflex as a mom was well, I need to be beside him just to make sure that as he climbs the three steps um, he stays uh, especially when you have like a spinal cord injury you really don't want your kid to just fall on his head there's a big fear there um, so I wanted to be there, but I couldn't. Even if I had been there, um, I'm in a wheelchair, so I can't really hold him. So I asked my dad, right? Um, he's physically capable of doing that. So I asked him to sort of like be there. Um, and my dad just smiled and sort of said, ah, you worry too much. You worry too much, he's doing it fine. Look, you know, it's been like, he's gone at it twice. Like he, he hasn't fallen. It's just fine. You could like relax. And I have like the rest of my family sort of like chit-chatting and sort of, ah, you're a protective mom and okay, yet I'm the mom and I can't do it and I'm asking you to do it, but that's fine. Okay, never mind. So I'm looking at my kid because I'm worried and I wish I could be there. 
And you could just imagine in slow motion, I see my kid on the last step, trip, and slow motion, fall onto his head. Yes, I have the full blown. Um, onto his head. And that was just um, crazy for me. So I started to yell, and I'm going to read because it's just emotional, emotional that part. I yelled and I screamed at my dad for not listening to me. I cried and I wanted to die. How could I protect my kid like any other parent would if nobody listens to my reflex? I said, protect my kid. I can do it. You need to do it for me. Um, how can I protect my kid if the people who vowed to be my substitute when I can't do it don't listen to what I ask of them? They don't follow through. That was my first sort of um, reaction in terms of um, that relationship that would develop between my parents and I in terms um, of co-parenting. And I'll talk about a little bit co-parenting um, a little bit later. I felt um, the heartbreak. The um, heartbreak in seeing my child respond emotionally um, to someone else. So you have to imagine that a spinal cord injury is a big thing. Um, I had a few surgeries and then I had to regain my independence from those surgeries. And certainly I had to like learn everything. I mean, I'm paralyzed from the chest down, no, uh, no abs. Um, so even my balance is, um, um, I had to relearn in terms of my balance. So basically my son was raised by my parents for those six months because I was in hospital and I was in the rehab center and I had to really focus on my own rehab rehabilitation. Um, so they, they did everything for him. I mean, at 16 months old, they changed diapers, they gave him bath, they fed him, um, they disciplined him, I mean, pretty much, you know, parented him. Um, they brought him to daycare, they had his first haircut with him, um, they played in the snow with him, and basically I was during those six months on the periphery. Now, children are very smart um, at a young age. They get it. My son got it. He knew who he could ask and who he needed to ask to have things done, right? And it wasn't me. It wasn't me, it was my mom. And my mom is a great mom, um, but I'm Thomas's mom. And so when he was calling my mom, mom, I was very difficult because even though I was happy he had that, it wasn't me and that was very difficult. Um, it was very difficult also because I was thinking of a particular family who um, their kid, their son, got placed in a foster family and in Canada um, you have certain um, foster parents that are willing to adopt a kid. So we call them mixed bank homes. Um, and with that family, th the child was placed in a mixed bank home. And those parents really, really liked this child and really wanted to adopt him. Yet you had the family that I was work working with, two parents with an intellectual disabilities, 
trying to gain sort of um, access to their kid but also have that relationship and they had to sort of co-parent and negotiate with foster parents who really were hoping that they would fail so that they could adopt the kid. I got lucky. I had to negotiate co-parenting with my mom who my mom only wanted me to be mom. She didn't want to take my place and it was very clear from the get-go and she said it every time that she could. Um, she wanted to be grandma, she just wanted me to have the op opportunity to raise my kid. I got lucky. Parents with intellectual disabilities usually don't have sort of that advocate in their corner helping them. So that's the heartbreak. I felt the grief um, and uh, the loss. Now, for parents with intellectual disabilities, it's really around sort of um, having that role redefined, um, but losing that role also. I mean, some of those children, they will never see or they will see seldom, you know, or on supervised visits. Um, in my case, it was the loss of that dream, the dream that I had of raising my kid on my own um, and just seeing him grow and learn. Um, but it was also sort of an opportunity to refocus and reframe and sort of say I'm a mom because he is and so um, even though it's not the dream that I had um, I need to rebuild sort of that dream around the situation that we were in. But the grief and the loss is pretty much um, there. A big part of the emotions um, was around learn helplessness, the powerlessness um, that came out. Um, the fact also that there's limited choice and sort of that voice. So like I said before, I'm lucky I'm able to speak, to speak up, so I have that voice. Parents with intellectual disabilities often are discarded um, and that voice doesn't shine through. Um, and I know how to use my voice. Um, but their learned helplessness, having, you know, sort of someone else do things and, and you trying to tell them, no, that's, that's not really how I want it to be done. Um, a lot of you, I think, are social workers, so you can imagine the relationship that I had to develop with my mom. I mean, my mom is always in terms of, like, hierarchy, and now I became sort of the, the queen bee, so I had to tell my mom, no, that's, no, yeah, I know you did it this way, but really I didn't like it. Um, so we're changing it for my kid, you know, you're going to do it the way that I really would like <laughs> to be done. Um, and sort of that negotiation could be quite um, interesting and challenging. With all those emotions, there was also the emotion of, can I really do it? Right, because I could prepare answers and I, I was ready to like face child welfare if they were to come. Um, but then there was that, you know, sort of confidence level. Um, I was newly in my chair, sort of trying to figure out things for me, how to take care of me, and then I had to like also figure out how to take care of another um, person. Um, and so I think the biggest challenge was convincing myself that I could become a parent. Um, there was a, 
you know, a lot of questions. Can I, can I be a good parent, even if I can no longer do certain skills associated with parenting? What does it mean to be a good parent? How do we determine good enough parenting? And if I require help and support, if I'm dependent on others for certain things, does it mean that I can't parent? And those questions were constantly sort of there. Um, as I did that, I turned to what I know best, which is look online for articles and research. <laughs> Thank God for iPad and internet. Um, I spend a lot of time in my hospital bed um, searching for answers. I needed answers, so I was turning to what I knew. Um, and I found this article um, that actually scared me uh, to some ex extent because it showed me that many women with physical disabilities uh, describe having to demonstrate their competency and parental fitness. And that's pretty much what parents with intellectual disabilities <coughs> also have to do. Um, and that, you know, there's different stories that come through in research where you had, you know, uh, moms had to try to convince a mother, you know, to give her baby for adoption or put the baby in foster care. Like, you can do it. So those are the two choices that you have left doing. And that being a single mother was also a risk factor. So I was like, yay, single mother um, by choice, but single mother nonetheless, um, and moms with uh, you know, physical disability. Um, there was also this thing that, you know, we don't really want to talk about, and I showed you pictures of different adults in my son's life, um, you know, my mom, um, friends, my brother, his wife, um, and as I was seeing other adults sort of interact with my kid and sort of like step up in terms of that, I also wondered, well, maybe, maybe I should just pull back. <coughs> and let them do it because they're doing a great job and I'm seeing like many different um, things. And so I often wondered, well, maybe, maybe I should just, the pressure of like having to negotiate and like showcase that I can do it and prove to everybody, prove to myself is like incredible. Um, and so sometimes letting go is sort of easier. That made me reflect on some of our parents who have that, you know, those eyes and that pressure to perform on a constant basis, who tried with the first child, with the second child, with the third child, and sort of at one point, you know, probably said, nah, I'm like, I'm done, I don't, like, I just can't anymore. Um, and that's a very strong and real um, emotion in terms of that. Now that I've depressed everybody, <laughs> there is hope. And again, hope I found in um, research. And I wanted to uh, quote it. Um, Independence is not about the ability to carry out tasks of da daily living without assistance. Rather, it is the ability to lead an autonomous life and make decisions about important life choices. In the case of parents with disabilities, and I would say all disabilities, even though that research was on physical disability, um, the inability to carry out some of the physical tasks 
associated with parenting has little to do with one's ability to be a competent parent. However, some mothers and fathers with disabilities require assistance which will enable them to meet the needs of their children. So I found my answer. I can't be a parent even though I can't do it all. Um, I just needed to prove it to myself or do it to myself. And that's what I called moving forward. Um, and I realized that moving forward, um, well, my needs needed to be assessed, um, which was, again, very interesting. I was looking into a mirror. Um, and um, to find sort of adaptations, you need to know what those needs are. Now, I was very lucky. I found um, an OT who did the assessment for me, or on me, or whatever that works, um, the discussions that we had. Um, and her, her eyes um, were non-judgmental. They were very caring. They were very supportive. Solution focused, so it was really about the adaptation. Um, based on the fact that she truly believed that I could parent, it was just like, how can we help you and where do you want the help? Um, it was proactive and it felt normal. It really was about how to empower me in my parenting role. So as we negotiated sort of that assessment and looked at different things, um, we really looked at the adaptations and most of the adaptation was uh, environmental and organizational. So we looked at things that could help me. Um, and as my son grew, you know, adaptation had to be modified. So here you see sort of like a stroller that I was able to uh, attach in my wheelchair. Now he's six years old, um, quite heavy. Um, never mind, my shoulders are more important. So I had to like sort of modify. That was good for about two months. <laughs> then he was way too big. Uh, we needed to change and, and looked for a different solution. Same thing for pretty much every single parenting task. Then there was negotiating parenting altogether. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, so I'm, the story happens in my sister's house. She lives about six hours in a different city. And um, I was there with my mom and my son. Um, and my son w had been coughing for a few days. And so imagine sort of this conversation. I think Thomas should go to the ER to have this cough checked out. Hey Thomas, come here. Um, you're still coughing a lot and so I will take you to the hospital so the doctor can check it. Lori, my sister, um, can you tell me where the nearest hospital is as I need to take Thomas there? Now as I'm telling sort of that little conversation and you have a beautiful picture of my family, who do you think was speaking? Do you think it was me? Well, in that case, it wasn't. It was my mom. Um, negotiating parenting um, is quite a challenge uh, when you have to negotiate with somebody else. And so that's where I would introduce the notion or the concept of co-parenting, um, which is the process through two or more adults provide sort of conjoint caregiving. Um, could overlap or shared responsibility, does not imply equal in authority or responsibility. So in that case, I can tell you the boss is me, um, even though I have to negotiate that. And um, 
it's sort of like having to negotiate who does what, how the roles happen, um, and how do we basically support Thomas in this co-parenting. As my son was little, um, the notion of co-parenting was also linked to the notion of uh, nurturing assistance. So I don't know if you have that concept um, in Australia. In Canada, we'll talk about a nurturing <coughs> assistant as a paid employee or somebody else. In my case, it wasn't a paid employee. Um, but it was basically somebody who assists with the activities of bathing, changing. So basically all the physical things that I can't do because uh, it's just uh, too strenuous. I mean, the bath is pretty low, and so if I have to like go down, um, it's more difficult. If he slips, I don't have the muscle to be able to take care. So bathing, for example, I had to tell my mom, okay, now you like um, wash his hair, now you like wash his bum, now you know he's done. Um, so basically dictating the task to my mom the way that I would have done them, but she was the one sort of performing. So that's where when we talk about nurturing assistance, um, the parent really remains the responsible caregiver. Um, the other person is just someone who acts on what happens. So my mom co-parents with me. Um, my dad is also in the picture, but you know, and there's two strong women. Um, <laughs> the male person just, you know, gets to stay a grandfather. <laughs> just doesn't have, you know, the same space. Um, we don't allow it. Um, um, parenting or co-parenting was really not my choice, as you could see. Um, I had no choice, but we had to do the best um, of it. I'm lucky co-parenting happens with a person that has similar values than me. Um, the same concept as to what we want for my kid. Um, that's easy. Parents with intellectual disabilities don't have that luxury. They co-parent, because I really do believe that they co-parent, or they should co-parent, because co-parenting means that they would still be in control of um, their child's sort of upbringing, which they're not. Um, but they would need to co-parent with people of different cultural backgrounds, um, different um, socioeconomic backgrounds sometimes. So co-parenting in that respect is sort of a whole lot um, harder. Co-parenting is hard, even in best um, circumstances, and boundaries, just like in my little example, happen and they get crossed, and so things need to be re-established. And they get re-established by, um, you know, having conversations, so we need to agree. We sometimes need to agree to disagree, and when that happens, I get to pull my card. I'm mom, so we're doing it this way because I'm mom. Um, we need to be clear as to who does what, um, when, how. The how is very important because my mom does things a bit different than I do. Um, we need to support each other's intervention. I mean, kids, again, very smart. They'll pick up on sort of the, you know, the fact that we don't agree on everything, um, which could then lead to him not listening to my mom, which I need him to listen to mom, even though mom does things that, you know, may be different than me at certain times. Um, and then when it doesn't work, we need to readjust. And I can tell you, 
um, traveling. We're in a different setup. Need to readjust because <laughs> um, we live in the same space. You know, at home we have two different apartments, so I could say to Grandma, like, go home. <laughs> I'll manage. Um, here a little less. Go to your room doesn't really work. <laughs> you, know? you don't say that to your mom even though you co-parent. Um, so we need to just talk it out. Um, now with all of that, imagine um, the situation where you have to co-parent with that person who really wants to have your child, you know, like in my example. And so that person is not open to co-parenting. They're not open to agree with you. They're not open to readjust. And they may sort of, you know, in front of the child, um, send messages that you're a bad parent or that you're not doing it right, you know, sabotage. In that example that I gave you about this couple who is trying to regain custody of their two-year-old son, um, as I was working with the couple and assessing their parenting skills for, for court, um, I showed up at the daycare and I couldn't find, you know, like have, they have those lockers for children. I couldn't find the locker um, of that child that I was, you know, assessing and sort of looking. And so I asked, I said, well, where's um, Simon's locker? Oh, um, here we don't call him Simon. What do you mean you don't call him Simon? No, no, he's, he's Alex here. Well, his name is Simon. Well, no, his, the foster parents called, <coughs> call him Alex. So you can imagine um, there were situations where the foster parents were saying, well, you know, like, he's not responding to mom and dad. Well, no, he's two years old. He's being called most days. Alex, and then mom and dad are saying, come here, Simon, come here, Simon. He doesn't think that it's applying to him, right? So understand that context and working with the co-parents, um, quite, quite something. Um, when we have those situations where co-parenting um, occurs, um, I would say that we need to empower um, uh, co-parenting. Certainly my mom has done fantastic. You know, it's not all bad. She doesn't just like step over my toes. Um, just happens seldom. Uh, she's done stuff where I'm in bed, let's say I have a long routine or I have, you know, something physical that I need to stay in bed. But I forgot or I couldn't do the, the lunch the night before. She'll tell me in the morning, what do you want in the lunch? You know, in his lunchbox. And I could tell her and she'll go in the fridge and she'll organize. So co-parenting, you know, um, it's, it's wonderful when it works. Um, one thing that I would add is that if you don't allow me to do it, um, I will never know that I can do it, which means that co-parent, you need to ask. It's a little bit like uh, when Margaret earlier, there was a big hill and she sort of asked, like, do you want me to push or like, how are you, you know, it's negotiating all of that, but it's asking it, have, having the respect um, that the other person may want at that time to, to do it on their own. And then at the end of the day, it's really what's best for Thomas. And if we all agree, then we all are doing a good job. I realized as I chose my picture, I really like, like my son's eyes. I think they're very like beautiful and brilliant. Um, 
we're talking about parenting and he has a black eye. <laughs> so I went, wait, like, you know, black eyes happened. And, you know, his, his eyes are still beautiful. So I will conclude in terms of lessons learned. I'll try to do that fast. First thing, understand the context. An assessment um, is not following a checklist and interventions are not prescriptions. We need to understand how assessments, checklists, observations and interventions really fit within the life of that family so that we can make it work. The parent is never you as workers and it's not the foster parents. Um, I'm very like strong with that. If we want to be truly inclusive and respectful, we need to truly listen to what parents have to say and how they want their children to be raised. They are the parents. Never seen that in intervention plans. How would you like us to discipline your kid? So things will happen. Never ever was that an objective in an intervention plan. Although we're often trained um, to see what doesn't work, um, we first need to focus on what does work. And when we think parents can parent, all of a sudden we see a lot of good things happening. Um, and we need to focus on that. Maybe different, but still good things. Having said this, parents with disabilities can do it all. I mean, I know it. I'm the first one to say it. We all know it. I think it, you know, we would be lying to, to ourselves. But it's not because I can't do it all that I can't do anything at all. Um, there are plenty of things that I can do and do well for my child. I just need help to do some of them. I need someone to do some of them for me. Um, and I need space to do the rest on my own. And that space is very important. And that would be, you know, for any parent. We need to support parents um, with disabilities to be okay with the fact that they can do it all. Sometimes they have sort of that pressure to overdo it. Um, to showcase that they can, so they will hide sort of the disability or the things that they can do, um, which then puts them in a situation where people will say, well, see, he doesn't even know that he can't do it. Um, expectations should never be that parents do it all. Um, in the normal world, I don't know any parent who does it or do it on their own. We all need a little bit of help. Um, here, um, I like this. Um, the advice to other disabled people would be to concentrate on the things your disability doesn't prevent you from doing well and don't regret, regret the things that it interferes with. Don't be disabled in spirit as well as physically. Um, don't judge me on your standards when I do things on my own. So my disabilities may impair how I do them. I may need to adjust some of the tasks to my capabilities. And so it may look weird, um, but different does not mean bad. So an example that I give is that if my kid falls down and hurts himself, you know, and he's crying, um, your first reflex might be to go over, grab your kid, comfort him. I can't do that. My reflex has to be, Thomas, get up. Come on, you can do it. I know it hurts, but you get up and then climb onto mommy's lap. So he has to work with me. It looks different. It also may look a little bit harsh because I have to sort of like tell my kid like, seize up, you know, like 
stop the emotion, like focus, you need to do something, then I can comfort you. So it may look, dif you know, weird, different, um, but in the same time, it's about comforting him at the end, and so that piece has to, to work. <coughs> I think that we also need to uh, integrate the notions of co-parenting in our interventions in research. Co-parenting is a concept that's, you know, with divorced parents, um, same-sex parents, um, only two studies I could find where there's a dyad between a grandmother and a mother. Um, yet, I see a lot of co-parenting happening in parents with intellectual disabilities, but we're not looking at it. Um, co-parenting is important because really at the end of the day, it's about the child. Um, we need to be able to elicit mutual concern, frame goals, and interventions around improving the interpersonal environment for the child. So it's really about um, them. Now, with lost dreams, parents need to reinvent themselves um, as the parent they should be and not get stuck as the, the parents that they wanted to be at the beginning. And so as worker, we need to sort of be able to recognize that and support it. And then um, I used sort of the title of um, a research, The Same Only Different, to showcase sort of the same before my accident only different after, find different ways of like swimming with my kid. The same, only different, was cuddling with my kid before, you know, we found other ways to cuddle. The same, only different with environmental adaptation, all of a sudden I can play in the park with um, Thomas, you know, I'm able to do that. And if you're worried um, or scared for the children, please don't be. They're quite resilient. My son is quite the um, engineer. He could tell you where buildings need to be adapted, where ramps need to be built. He's created in Legos many different wheelchairs for different occasions. Um, even here in Sydney, he's like ready to reorganize the city. <laughs> hills? <laughs> the hills are just like quite challenging. Um, my mom and my niece, you know, will have like buns of steel <laughs> after like pushing me up the, the, those big hills. And they're quite strong too. And so are we. Now I'll end with a little quote of a mom with a disability, a physical disability. Um, talking about ramps, so just as a ramp enables uh, her to exercise her civic rights, um, she was going to court that day, I need a ramp to parenting, a ramp to enable me to exercise my human rights and to fulfill the responsibility that go along with parenting. So I think we need to all look for ramps um, to motherhood. In uh, this photograph, um, iPad and internet um, saved my life. I saw my kid bathe in every morning. I ate breakfast with him every morning even though I was in the hospital. And when there was this big snowfall and he built his first snowman, I was there and he knew I was there because he could see me on the iPad and FaceTime. Um, and I was like just priceless for both him and for me. So we should all think of ramps to parenting. That's it.
Marjorie, thank you. I co-parent and uh, I found that a very um, humbling experience to listen to, to you speak today. Um, it's taught me a lot. Um, I think for many um, of the people here, many of you are students, um, many I see some of our graduates, I think um, in terms of the lecture tonight um, here in the Faculty of Education and Social Work, both as people training or people involved in education and in social work and our um, guests from our Faculty of Health Science, I see many of you here too, we're all in this position where um, we're working with people and it's very easy to look at things and to see things as different and then go bad or scary. And we live in a risk-averse, we work in a risk-averse culture and it's very easy to sort of look at what could be going wrong. I think what you tell us, Marjorie, is look to what is possible. And, um, and I think our lesson is, um, I think Thomas is showing us the way by saying is how do we reinvent this? and look for solutions. No. Um, so thank you very much. And Clover Moore, the Mayor of Sydney, will be seeing Thomas tomorrow <laughs> for uh, advice on how to rebuild the city. But thank you for rebuilding our minds, our minds here in terms of how we think about parenting. So thank you. Thank you very much.